You're listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. Today's teaching text comes from Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 17. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of the God. Word of God. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, church. Kind of got up here quick. How's everybody doing? All right. Um, there's something I've been kind of curious about and thinking through, and I'm just wondering by a show of hands, how many of you have ever been up against it? <laughs> I love. I love that there are already hands up. So by it, uh, what I mean is, how many of you have ever had that thing or that block that's been consistent in your life that you just couldn't get over? Like, maybe it's like that thing at work, that one task that you just keep failing at, or you try and try as you might, you just can't get over. Maybe you're in school, and it's that one subject that you just can't conquer and you try as you might. Maybe it's, you know, for those of you who are in like relationships, it's that thing, you know, right when you feel like you're on the edge of like getting in love with this maybe it, and that thing happens that you always do that self-sabotages and you're back swiping again, and you're just like up against it. How many of you? Show of hands. All right, good one. Some of y'all are chilling. God bless you. <laughs> Tell me your secrets. Uh, by rule, I like try to, when I share about my life, I try to share out of wounds or scars and not wounds, but today I'm gonna give you a wound because this is kind of like the thing that I'm kind of actively up against. And uh, if we've like been around at a party or something, you've probably heard me talk about it, but um, I, I have to say, I have, uh, a two-year-old who was in the room but probably had to be taken out because of what I'm about to say. But I just want to start with saying that he is the joy of my life. I really do love him. He has like changed my life in ways I couldn't imagine and blessed me beyond measure, particularly because as a two-year-old, he has already developed his own uh, agency and a love for basketball. It's, it's a stereotype, I know, I get it, I, know, I understand the optics, but the dude loves basketball, he asked for it, we watch it together, and I really thought 
maybe it's gonna have to something I'd have to talk him into later in life, but he's in. And so I'm just like, you're my man. Uh, and I say, I preface all that because uh, the thing that I'm up against is also him. Uh, I love him so much, but terrible twos, man, we are in it. And people try to tell you to call it terrific twos, that is a lie. It is, it's not. He, we're in this phase where he is, um, he's basically a sociopath. Uh, <laughs> he has no empathy, no regard for others, and is completely driven by his own desires and wants. Uh, and like, literally they tell you, like when you read the books, you're like, oh yeah, you know, Tyler's like clinical sociopath. Um, and it's my job to teach him empathy and turn him not into a serial killer. Um, and, and, and there's this thing lately in the past few months where he's learned the word no. And so I, I am exploring all his agency. Um, you, you, you can hear him in the back. Where, you know, it's like, hey, you know, James, do you want this? No. Uh, you know, can I please feed you food to keep you alive? No. Uh, you know, could maybe I like wash you so people will want to be around you? No. Uh, and then lately it's actually evolved from no to nope, which... I don't know why, but nope carries this like dismissiveness that seems worse, particularly for someone that like cleans your butt, you know? Like, nope, I just, ah oh, man. Honestly, <laughs> I'm like up against it. Like what makes it harder is when you're up against it, this thing you're trying to overcome, and then you're trying to overcome it in a healthy way. Right? Because, like, there's, like, even with, like, a two-year-old, there are unhealthy ways to, like, put the fear of God in. I'm like, that's what I got, you know, um, as a kid. But I'm trying to do it differently. I'm trying to do it in a healthy way. So when he, like, you know, smacks or we had dear friends during the potty training wars. This is a real story. In the middle of the potty training wars with their son, uh, encouraging him, begging him to go to the bathroom, he looked them dead in the eye dropped his pants, and pooped on the floor. <laughs> and what the books tell you is that you're just supposed to act like it's no big deal. And you're just, okay, don't make a scene. Like, what? <laughs> it's a thing. It's a thing. It's hard. We are all, at one point or another, if you haven't raised your hand, trust me, you will raise your hand. Because at some point in your life, you're going to be up against it. You're going to be up against something. There's this... Uh, story of the Bible that I find fascinating. It's Matthew 8, and uh, you, you may be familiar with it. It's a centurion. Uh, and, and I'm just going to like read just a little part of it. We're going to read some of it, but uh, it starts in the beginning, Matthew 8, verse 5. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. So, Again, we all know this time, uh, uh, Capernaum, like we are, uh, the Jews are under Roman occupation. And so you have these centurions, uh, these, which are soldiers, guards, occupied forces wandering around. And this guy uh, has this servant that's sick at home. And so he goes to Jesus and he asks for Jesus to heal the servant. And what I find so fascinating um, is he asks Jesus to heal the servant, the servant. And Jesus says, okay, well, should I like go to your house? You want me to come and, and see him? And, and in response to this question from Jesus, should I come and heal your servant? Let's read. Listen to what he says. Verse 8, he says, 
the centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one to go and he goes and that one to come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And watch what happens in, in verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Now maybe you're familiar with this story, maybe it could be the first time you've heard it. Here's why I find it so fascinating in this discussion of being up against something. The first thing is, this centurion has this problem that actually doesn't really have to be his problem, right? Because I'm sure this man is obviously a man of authority, so he's also a man of great wealth and privilege. So I'm sure he has more than just this servant, right? And I'm sure that this servant, he probably has a head of servants. So like, why is he concerned about this one person that like brings him his food? It's so easy to be like, just get somebody else in here, you know? And yet he like cares, he cares about this problem. And then what also amazes me, not only does he care about this problem, but this problem, he has so many other places to take it besides where he does. Think about it. He's a Roman. This is an occupied force. The Roman Empire at this time is one of the most advanced societies uh, in the world. I'm sure they have prolific medicine and doctors. If your servant is sick, would you not just go to a doctor if you do care that much? Would you not, as a Roman, want to go to another Roman or someone of uh, reputable standing in your society according to the mores and values? And if you are going to go to someone, wouldn't you go to someone with like some medical like training? But this guy has this problem and he takes it to this Jewish teacher. And I find that really fascinating. Not just because of that, but that's just the tip of the iceberg because not only does he take it to this Jewish rabbi, he does it in a crowd, right? So some of us, like we might have an issue, we might want to talk to someone about it. But because of like social standing and hierarchy, like maybe I'm gonna wait. Like you think about Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus is this religious leader, high astute uh, in power, and he is curious about Jesus. But he comes to Jesus in like the middle of the night because he's got a reputation to uphold. Think about what Jesus tells us in Matthew five that if a Roman asks you, a soldier asks you to take their pack and carry it. Don't just take it one mile, take it two. Well, that's because in this day, there's this, more, there's this law that a Roman soldier had the right and the power to command any citizen to carry his armor for him up to a mile. And so here is this man that is in every way in his cultural moral and status of his time beneath him, and it would seem ill-fitting to the problem that he has, and yet in the middle of public, this man of power descends to Jesus, so to speak, to ask him to help with this thing that he's up against. But I also don't just find that fascinating. 
what I find fascinating too is how he brings it to Jesus. There's times throughout the Gospels where you see people need something of Jesus. Um, and they ask him, like, God, could you just come, like, do something? And, and they kind of, like, have this hope and faith, like, for him. Or, or sometimes they're just clueless, like, you know, the man at the, the pool of Bethesda. He didn't know who Jesus was. This entry comes to Jesus with a faith that he has brought his problems to the right place. A faith so assured and so steadfast and committed that it shocks the God of the universe. Like he's not, this isn't the end of the road, the last stop, last ditch effort. This guy passed apothecaries and healers, doctors, midwives. He passed all sorts of people and went straight to Jesus with full confidence this is where he needed to go. And not just that, he comes in a way, and I I wrote this, it will be up here. He comes in a way uh, uh, with this deep, basic understanding of power, authority, and most importantly, Jesus. Like so much of it shocks him. That word there, the, the, that Jesus is amazed, uh, thalmazo, it's this Greek word. It, it happens 48 times in the scriptures, right? And by and large, like, I forget the count, but the most predominant use of that word is people examining Jesus doing something incredible or examining someone doing something that Jesus has empowered them to do and them going, whoa, you just healed that man. That guy was blind. That dude's been crippled his whole life. I know him. And you just touched him and he's walked. People's minds are blown. Twice that word is used when it comes to Jesus. Both times it has to do with faith. Once here, Jesus is marveled. His mind is blown at the faith of the centurion. The second time is in Mark 6 where Jesus comes into his hometown and he wants to do miracles, but he can't because the people have so little faith in what he can do. And it says that Jesus marveled at their lack of belief. Imagine shocking the God of the universe. And what's his rationale? Like, like what's his, like, what gives him this confidence? Well, let's read it again. Verse 8. I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Verse 9. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one to go, he goes. And that one to come, he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. This man understands power and authority, but he also understands that Jesus has the most power and authority. Again, he's going to a person that in his, in his society, he technically outranks and stands over, and yet he says, I, you, don't, you can't even go to my house. 
I'm not worthy of you coming to my house. And not only that, think about this. When he wants his servant to be healed, and maybe he's seen and he's heard of, you know, the, the hemorrhaging woman grabbing the cloak of, of, of Jesus. Maybe he's heard of Jesus spitting in the mud and putting the eyes on the blind man. Or, you know, but what does he ask for? He doesn't ask him to come touch. He doesn't bring his servant. He walks and he believes that God just has, Jesus just has to speak a word. He believes that the breath of God has power over death. Like what is words but just air pushing through vocal cords and creating sound vibrations? And he believes that this man's air is so powerful that it can heal his servant from miles away. And isn't it amazing that the Holy Spirit is called Numa breath? This man knows the authority of the Father embodied in the body of the, of the Son expressed through the power of the Spirit. And he has placed all of his life and his servant's life on that belief. He's up against it and he takes it to Jesus. I find it, I find it fascinating. And it makes me wonder, like, do I know this power? Do you know this power at that level? Like the question would be, to where or to whom have you been taking the things that you're up against? Where are you taking your stuff? To who are you taking your stuff? I mean, maybe they're somewhat qualified, like, Praise God for therapists and counselors, right? Praise God for good friends. Praise God for hospitals and medicine. All that stuff. None of that's like necessarily bad or bad at all. But this man has this conviction that those are just shades of a deeper power. And since that power was close by, I was just, I don't have to take an Uber. Just walk. That's kind of what leads me to Ephesians. Uh, our passage that we're going to be passing or going through in the next few weeks is, is found in Ephesians. And uh, before we get there, I, I just want to explain um, why I think what does you know this centurion have to do with uh, our teaching text and the armor of God. But the thing you have to know as we go into Ephesians, what's happening. So uh, Ephesians, Ephesus actually was a place, I would say, very similar to our own New York City. Uh, it was a, a bustling port city. If you remember when we uh, did our series, uh, Resilient Hearts, I talked about uh, this uh, in geography, human geography. There's this concept called a command and control center. These are, these are cities that are like huge bustling kind of like that that big gas station in the middle of nowhere kind of pit stops like this is the place to be and so Ephesus modern day Turkey was that place during uh, the early like first century AD so much of literally the name Ephesus means desire right so this is like the place to be it's a sprawling metropolis full of commerce and culture and Paul like really loves this place. Paul is on probably the middle of his second missionary journey where he stops here and he plants a church 
in Ephesus, right? And he takes this couple, Aquila and Priscilla, which sounds like they probably have matching haircuts, uh, <laughs> and he puts them in charge of uh, the church there at Ephesus, and he powers them to oversee it. Ephesus, this sprawling church, uh, is created here in, this, in the midst. And Ephesus is actually one of the churches we know most about because it appears all over the place. It's all over Acts. Obviously, it has its own letter. It's in Revelation. Uh, Ephesus was home to all like some heavy hitters, right? Uh, uh, you've heard of Apollo. Apollo was this big man of God. Uh, Timothy, uh, Epaphras, John the disciple, all of them were like at one time like pastors or missionaries sent in and through Ephesus. And Paul has this deep uh, uh, heart for the city of Ephesus and for the people of Ephesus and he even spends two to three years in the middle of his journey stationed there. So after like 10 years of Paul, uh, after this church has been founded, Paul's in prison, uh, he's in Rome, he's near kind of actually the end of his life. And he's writing this letter to this church. And the thing about this church is that this church has got it. Like, they, they're like the gold standard. Actually, in Revelation, when uh, John writes the letter to the seven churches, he writes the church in Ephesus, and he condemns them um, because they have lost their first love. They kind of drifted away. But in the beginning, at this time, where Paul's writing this letter, this church was the family of God. They were ten toes down. It was a multi-ethnic community of people of, of disparate socioeconomic values in a land, uh, in a perverse land where there was like a lot of idol worship. And they were just fully pushing in to the kingdom of God. They were fully living out the kingdom of God. And so Paul is in prison in Romans and he writes in Rome and he writes this letter to them. Uh, and it's in this letter to Ephesians is like this, it's this treatise on Christian living. So if you think about Paul's letter to the Romans, right? And if you consider Paul's letter to the Romans a treatise on the Christian faith, where Paul kind of breaks down uh, all that it, all that underpins our beliefs. Well, to the Ephesians, that letter is really this treatise on the Christian life, like how we should live, what it's rooted in, but what does this actually look like practically, right? And there's this like beautiful symmetry that happens in the book of Ephesians. I'm, uh, we won't go too deep, but I just want to kind of point out a couple things. So, uh, the first three chapters, so there's six chapters in Ephesians, the first three are really about orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is what we know, right? And the, the back half, chapters four through six, are about orthopraxy. Orthopraxy is about what we do. So what we know and what we do, this is important. If you think about Romans 12, 1, what does Paul say? He says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, what? By the renewing of your minds, what you know. Change what you know. Why do you change what you know? End of chapter 1, or 12-1. So that you may prove that which is the good and perfect will of God. And so we get our orthodoxy, but we don't just stop with learning good things and thinking good things about God, but that knowledge becomes wisdom because we express it through our lives. And so in the book of Ephesians, Paul is writing that out in a very practical way. And we see the, the theme, so in the first chapter, it's about us in him. Verse 4, chapter 1 says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. 
So we are going into God. Then, when you go to chapter theme of four through six, it's him and us. Verses uh, chapter 320 says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine, according to his power that is, a, that is at work, where? Within us. First half, we are going deeper into him. The second half, his power is at work in us, through us. The first half, look at where it begins. Paul says this again in verse 4. He chose us. Chapter 2, verses 89, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. This faith, he started it. All right, so if you want to learn about it, learn that it's him doing it, not you. But then go to the back end. Paul goes through all of his practical living, how you should live, love your parents, obey them, submit to your, your wives, love your... But then what he says, for it is by... Uh, sorry, uh, at the end of chapter 6, uh, he goes in and he gives us the armor of God, our teaching text. Listen to it again. Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of who? Not your armor, but the full armor of God, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. It starts with Jesus, it starts with the Father, it starts with the Spirit, it ends with Jesus, it ends with the Father, it ends with the Spirit. Whether we're learning about him or practicing and living in the way, it's all him. The whole way through, we show up and surrender. So he's reminding us, chapter 6, that this Christian living, living out the things we know about God, being able to push up against the things that we're up against, that we can do it through the armor of God. That he has provision for us in a contested space. This is what the centurion believed. That God had what he needed to overcome what he was up against. Jesus had what he needed what he needed to overcome what he was up against. The band's going to come back up. Um, I just want to give you this. We went through, I want to kind of see where we're going. Uh, we started a few months ago with Resilient Hearts. And that was really a series about building up the courage to get up against life in this city. Because sometimes it's the city that you're up against. The culture, the rent, the people, you're just kind of up against it. The heat, Lord have mercy, we're up against it. And then we just finished covered ground. And that was really reminding ourselves of how faithful God has been so that we can have confidence of how faithful he will be as we go forward. In lives in the city, through the transition of this church, through this age of COVID, and now, today, we're, we're about to start a journey unpacking Ephesians 6 in the armor of God. Because it's, frankly, friends, we've got to start living again. We've been sitting, we've been licking our wounds, and there is a time for that. But it's, it's kind of time to, like, get up and start moving forward. But we can't move forward in and of our own power and strength. 
We have to have the conviction of the centurion that God's got us and that he has everything we need to overcome everything we're going to be up against. Because listen to verse 12. Just one, I, just, I just want to give you this. Verse 12, Ephesians 6, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The testimony of Scripture is that it's not just your neighbor driving you up the wall, or your landlord who doesn't respond, or that person who ghosted you. But there's literal forces of evil that know your name and are seeking to break you down. Imagine going to your job and there's another person that's been hired to actively mess up your papers. You're trying to flip burgers and he's like, put more salt on it. That's the testimony of scripture that we have an enemy against us. But the other testimony of scripture, John 4, 4, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. God's got us. And so as we unpack the armor of God. We're going to be looking at how God's got us. We're going to be looking at how God has equipped us to stand up against all the things that we're up against. Let's move into a time of response. I want to invite you to these prayer rooms. The prayer team's going to come forward. I feel like there's an invitation today for somebody. I go back to that first question I asked earlier. Where or to whom have you been taking all the things you're up against? What have you tried? How's it worked out? I like to think I have the same conviction as that centurion. I'm trying to get there if I'm not there. I'm trying. I think about those moments when I'm facing my son and, and like things are crazy and he's having a meltdown. And I just like, in those moments, I just need the spirit of God. I need the equipping of God, the armor of God. And he makes it freely and readily available. And so I just want to invite you. There's nothing magical about these rugs or these people praying. There are people all around in this room that are confident enough to pray for you. But there is power and actively surrendering to God all that we have. And so sometimes we need to do it with our bodies because just thinking about it, we can kind of fool ourselves and say that I'm doing it, but I'm not actually doing it. And so would you take advantage of it? Would you receive the invitation to do with your bodies what your heart is longing to do, what the Spirit is calling you and inviting you to do, which is to lay whatever you're up against at the feet of Jesus? To believe that through Jesus, through the authority of the power as expressed, through the authority of the Father as expressed through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we can overcome, we shall overcome. So let's worship, let's respond, receive prayer, give prayer, do what you gotta do to meet with Jesus. And in a second, we're gonna come back and we're gonna go to the table.